and welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I am a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Uh, hi, I'm Ethan. I am a cartoonist and illustrator, and I also am a herpetoculture enthusiast. And Gabriel Ugetto. And I'm Gabriel Ugetto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but anymore, all the time I change, who is it? I love how it's just, you've just added more and more caveats as you've gone along. I'm very fast. I really like the, like the, like the, like the most things at the end of a commercial, you know, those side effects yeah. for medicine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Speak to your doctor if you're concerned about any side yeah. effects or if you want to have this. To... Yeah. Yes. What a career in her pathology. Indeed. <laughs> So welcome, friends. Uh, it's a new episode. We're here on a new, brand new day in, um, uh, you know, at home, like everyone else. Um, this is a works in progress episode where when we talk about all of our new and ongoing adventures in the world of working from home and... We also talk about a discussion topic, which today's episode is going to be... Europlatos. The coolest geckos in the world. Probably. <laughs> but anyway, to kick us off... It's a very, it's a very objective okay, metric. I mean, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. totally unbiased it's, on this respect. There's no <laughs> way to say that Europlatos is not cool. You have to be blind. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're like in the top five geckos... Five of them are Europlatus. That's <laughs> clearly <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. Uh, Ethan, why don't you start us off? Tell us about what's going on in your life and how you are sure. currently coping with the situation, as we're going to call it. Yeah. Yes, the, uh, the situation. So in the, in the before times, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had a day job where I worked uh, marketing and web design and stuff for a little local credit union. Well, they let me go. So, uh, so I decided that uh, rather than try to work for the man anymore, I was going to take the jump and do full-time freelance and, and cartooning and illustration and, uh, so I've been at that for a couple of weeks now, and it's actually going really Welcome well. Welcome to the dark side. I, 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 thank you. The, that uh, making that jump must be so brave. It must be such a scary I, I'm actually, step. it was, I, you know, in a way, they did me a favor. I, I had wanted to do this for some time. We, you know, I've talked about it with, with you guys before. And, uh, and I just was never, you know together never had my stuff together enough to say okay it's gonna be it and i had that decision made for me so so uh you know so they kind of did me a favor in that regard immersion and, therapy as they call it yeah. yeah just go right in and uh yeah so that so the first uh day i kind of put it out there and said all right i'm gonna open commissions back up and i don't know if we've talked about this before but i do a lot of like avatar drawings for people's uh often scientists i think i've mentioned twitter. before that if anybody if you see anyone on twitter who has an awesome illustrated avatar <laughs> there's like a 98% chance that it was made by 
There's a lot of that. Well, and I, I don't actually have a full count. I was trying when I was making my portfolio site, I was trying to put them all in one place and I lost count at cause it's not even all of them and there's well over four hundred in there. Wow. <laughs> and there's more I'm still doing them. And in the first week of this new endeavor, I I think I got 160, 170 inquiries. Just yeah. in, just Buried in emails, so so I've been like tweeting things like you know, hey, if you haven't heard from me, it's not that I'm ignoring you. I'm I'm inundated. Yeah. yeah. So so well, so mean, it's good. Of course, it's, it's uh, to be expected. No, I mean, uh, on the one hand, it is uh, it's a challenge, but your your the product that you're delivering is very well suited to the market. Yeah. And yeah, there yeah. are a lot of people who are seeing them like it's, they're perpetuating themselves, right? I can do usually it takes me I can do like 10 a day, roughly, right mm-hmm. of those. And so I'll sort of email them all out at once. And then when that when they go out, <laughs> I'll get another, you know, 20 emails back from people who just saw them post them. So it it sort of advertises itself. So there's there's not a there's certainly not a a, a lack of work, mm-hmm. um, but me adjusting to it and finding the right balance is something right. that I'm not used to. Uh, it's a constant I, challenge. Always, though, no matter how long have you been doing that, it's it's yeah. constant challenge to find out how to manage. Well, you know, it's it's funny because I've had my toe in those waters for so long, and and you know, I mean, I've done book illustration and I've done, but I've always had a day job because just I was afraid to make the jump, you know, but I sort of laid the groundwork for it over, God, however long it is I've been on Twitter, you know, I think I've been doing the avatar drawings for a good four or five years before, before this. So it's, it's not something that I could have just jumped into. I think, mm-hmm. I think that the groundwork kind of had to be yeah. there, but it, but it was so, so, yeah, and it's led to a lot of other other commission type things too. Yeah, I was going to ask about this because, like, the number of people on in SciComm Twitter who I, I imagine are the dominant people interested in in your product, as it were. Um, yeah, it is sort of finite. I mean, it's growing all the time, but it's kind of finite. Do you think that people are gonna? return to you for other kinds of illustrations or do you think this is a resource that well, can only really be tapped I think for so, so long? Far, I think so far they have. And I was always worried about the limitations of that. But they're not the only people who write me inquiries. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, I occasionally get people who will go like, do you have to be a scientist? to?" I'm like, no, I don't care what you do. So... <laughs> uh, Show so, me the money. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, not to be a jerk about it, but it's like I don't, care. you know, it's just, it's fine. Um. So, I think if I was limiting myself to that, that might be an issue. But that's not what happens, and because there's this sort of self-reinforcing or self-advertising aspect to it, where every time I complete a batch of them, people go, "Oh, those are cool. I want one. How did you get yours?" They then tag me and. And I get you know responses. Yeah, and that's that's, the, what, that's the why funny, you realize the importance of having your stuff always out there so people can see it. Yeah, 
Well, and I was just going to say, like I, I mentioned at the la- in our last episode that I had a, set up a portfolio website. I've sat on my domain name, my ethancosack.com. I've owned that domain name for decades, literally decades, <laughs> and never never did anything with it because I was just like, ah, you know, I just, I just owned it so that nobody else would buy it. And I went ahead and set something up, you know, not anything – super it's just like the adobe portfolio type thing and uh just in doing that i've gotten hundreds of inquiries from people just hitting the the contact form on it so it's good it's been good i can't complain you know that's great Uh, that's awesome yeah, it must be. So, it must eventually get difficult to like when you've got so many emails and you have to look at them, but you don't necessarily want to answer them immediately. This is my big oh my struggle. God. Yeah, it's well, like, email I get is a twenty whole, emails it, a day, it, and I want to read them, but I don't want to answer them immediately. But once I've read them, they're gone. So. I'm really bad with setting time limits in general, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the other day I did, I did art for. I sat there and did art for like t- for literally for like twelve hours straight. And every artist I know was like, you're an idiot. Don't ever do that again because you will break your hand. You will look like your eyes will fall out of your head. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Set, uh, you know, set a timer on your phone if you have to, but just, you know, stop. And because an email is the same thing for me. If I sit down and start answering emails, I can lose hours just out of just – I mean, it's incredible how much time you spend it is, and it's a, answering emails. It's a emails. big part of it. So I can give you like my what I do. Yeah. I um, I yeah, do a please. million lists. I'm made of lists yeah. that I try to adhere <laughs> all the time. From this time to this time, I'm gonna work on this. From this time, because I don't know about Somehow you. Somehow that matches a hundred percent to your personality, Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you have to. The question is, would you believe that I also live entirely on lists? Yes, I do believe. <laughs> I do believe. I do, I believe, do believe that. that. Yes, but but it, but it works because, for example, and this is gonna. I don't know if it fa- if it happens to you, Ethan, but I cannot work on the same like stuff that takes a lot of time. I cannot work on the same stuff for more than two hours. So I I try right. to say from this time to this time I'm gonna work on this project. From this time to this time, I'm gonna work on this project. Yes. Then I'm gonna get up. Then I'm gonna exercise. Then I'm gonna eat. Yep. You have to put all the time for even those things to go to the bathroom because otherwise you will. It is. Be able to it is. Manage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm learning that. I, I think I've never had. Uh, well, what's funny is t- too. Like, I've spent all this time working for other people at at jobs that I didn't really like, and. I was, I've always been kind of a slacker and I'm going to own it. You know, I, I totally am working for myself. I suddenly, somehow I'm a, I've become a workaholic you have your own drive. possibly because it's, it's my own skin in the yeah. game, but also it's just, uh, you know, I've never had that motivation to just sit there and do my own thing. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I also find a, that my motivation is, my not only my motivation but my ability to get work done is very strongly connected to some kind of internal drive so i worked in a in a pharmaceutical company um as a as an intern for a, for a short period of time 
and I was the worst person they've ever hired because I was like, all you want me to do is design complicated Excel sheets for you. And yeah, I can do that. But my brain is not in it and my, my heart is not in it. So right. I just, so I, I have discovered kind of accidentally by taking on this new fish job that, I mean, obviously I'm very interested in also in the work that I'm doing here, but in a very different way to what I've been inter- in, in, working on before. Um, but that I have now developed somehow, um, this internal like conscience about work. I must be working on the thing that I'm hired for, for my work hours. Don't necessarily have to get a lot done, but I have to at least be working on it. And that like, I didn't know that I had that until I've experienced it here, which is Good for me because otherwise I'd be working on frog projects all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, also, I think you have to at least for the the art side of things, things in order to stay sane, you also have to make time to do your own stuff sometimes, sometimes. and and uh, whether that's going to make you any money in the in the long run or not, just to sit there and do your own. Thing that you want to do, whatever that happens to yeah, be. Today absolutely. it's this. Today, today for me it's this. I, I you know, I'm, I'm not drawing. I'm, I'm podcasting. Yeah, so I totally and, and, within, and also within art, you also have to have time for a personal project. Like you do all yes, the commissions yeah. and the stuff, but you also have to take time to for to do something that is personally, you know, something that you want to do. Right, or you'll burn yep. out completely. Yep. Like that—that's right, because otherwise, right, you don't want to be in a position where you hate doing the work. I actually like the work, but if it's all you ever do, yeah. you resent yeah. it. And so, yeah. So I'm. I think the hardest part right now is just that because I don't because I've never done this in this way. I'm still learning the ropes as far as time management and. And running a business, um, that's another thing. Is it, it, like, I think I took one business course in all of the art classes, all the art school schooling that I had, and it was not a good business <laughs> course. So uh, I have to learn all this on my own. I was saying the other day about f- uh, filling out the paperwork for the for New York State taxes, and. This is how little our society values artists. There's no category for illustrator, but there was for psychic entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is so, a psychic entertainer? I don't know, but this was to get the sales certificate that you have uh, to, you know. A psychic entertainer is, of course, someone who reads your palm and tells right, you Right, like a future. fortune teller or, you know... Dion uh, Warwick Psychic Friends Network. Oh. Um, so the closest thing that they had was graphic designer. Oh. And I think it's because whoever built the system for this doesn't know what, you know. Crazy. But how, how could they there be so little demand? Category? They have performing artists. They have musical artists. They do not have anything resembling illustrator. Painter. Well, once you cho- once I chose graphic design, it then said like as subcategories. Uh, but you had to have already committed to graphic design. It wasn't like in the available choices. Then it had you know illustration, 
printmaking and some other stuff. So we can we, we can graphic, say that but, we can say that artists are not valued much in society. Hmm. That seems yeah. like unlikely. I haven't heard that before, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's good. It's good that you are that that you're what I find really good because artists do struggle a lot is that you're getting yeah. such a good response from people. And I think, and I think it's, it's knowing your niche as part of it. Um, I spent a lot of time niche. Yes. <laughs> I spent a lot of, t uh, uh, so much of that groundwork that I mentioned, right. Was, was finding that. And I, at first, when I first started, you know, getting on, on Twitter and stuff, I just followed people that I thought were interesting. And I had this kind of relationship with Darren. I had wanted to do comics out of his uh, Tetsu stuff. So it kind of grew out of just stuff that I was interested in personally. And that's, I don't know, if I, if I was giving advice, I would say sort of you build the niche out of what it is that you've that you want to do, that you want yeah, to see. There, there are so many artists that are, you know, really struggling, like, you know, finding, yeah. difficult to finding work and stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's, we're, we're in interesting times. We all, we all know that. And I think yeah. a lot of people, I think a lot of people want to support artists. I, I think it's actually, there's, there's a lot of people interested in, in, finding ways to support artists. So I try to, I've tried to be good about, you know, retweeting anybody I see who's trying to and as a general, as a make general, a living. I think the scientific community is, is good with that. Yes. Mm. I also yes. think that artists have a small advantage in, in our niche on Twitter in particular. I think that artists have a small advantage in, in that, the stuff that they're producing is inherently retweetable mm -hmm. and it, it can help you build a, an audience a little bit faster than say someone who is, is talking mostly about their science mm -hmm. because it's more like written medium is, it takes a lot more time to process and, and it's not as immediately True. accessible. Yeah. Like all of my most successful tweets have always been, like either crazy um, uh, assemblages of frogs from Madagascar or specific animals from Madagascar and like pictures, photographs. I always. think some of that, right. I think some of that boils down to just the fact that uh, a picture, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words kind of a thing where uh, people are much more, it's, it's why those like content scraper accounts are so, it can rack up so many followers and everything. And, and, they and suck. that's the I dark side them. of it. I hate them as well. That's the dark side of that. Though. That's the 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 people who are the ones using that who stuff write without in their imager in in their uh, not imager their um, Instagram caption DM for credit or removal. Yeah, that is heinous. So so far out of line. Yeah. That should be totally illegal. There's so many of them too. <sighs> Yeah, and they're so all th followed by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Because it works. A, a lot of a lot of, but I will say a lot of Psycom people are good about image attribution, and, yes. and they they know yeah. what you know what it means to credit someone correctly. So, you know, I guess there's a little there's two sides to that. So you know? we can expect a lot more art coming from you in the future, near future. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've tried to post what I can either publicly or on my uh, Patreon now, which also I have been doing a lot more with since that's now sort of also my job. So. <laughs> yeah, that must also be. Uh, so the, one of the reasons that I have been. Uh, very opposed to using Patreon for myself personally is that like I'm not an artist and what I write is mostly like it's going through peer review and it's like it's a slow sort of thing and I find it very difficult to justify doing that because also it takes must take so much time out of your day but obviously if you are producing art for them and like if it is that's actually why I haven't done Patreon because it gives me anxiety people want yeah well it does it gives me anxiety too it gave me a lot of anxiety even before because I was doing it even while I was working and for a while I all I did was just try to sort of use it like a tip jar saying you know you can subscribe at any level you want it's all the same rewards just put on there what you want. Mm-hmm. I have since since now I'm trying to make this part of my right. You have to my, optimize my, it for the new circumstance. Yeah. So so now there are tiers like other people are doing and stuff like that. The trick I'm finding is to try to find ways to make Patreon content out of stuff I'm already doing anyway. So for example, for me, what I do now is uh, for at least some of the sessions where I'm drawing. Uh, commissions I'm screen recording while I'm drawing and I put those screen recordings of me drawing whatever it is as Patreon content so they can see That's a what good I'm idea. working on yeah um, I, I follow um, I don't know if you know questionable content the comic but um, yes, Jeff Jacks yep. He used to do screencasting of his uh, comic, or I think he still does it, uh, of his comic drawing. And I've always found that really rewarding because I love watching how a comic comes together. And like for me, all these illustrations that I see on on, uh, Instagram, where it's like showing the illustration and then you swipe and the next thing is a video of how how the illustration came together. Yeah. That's so much more interesting to me than just looking at the picture. Yeah, there's, well, yeah, people love process stuff for sure. And so since I'm doing it anyway, I think that's a really good way to capitalize on, to make something exclusive that people want to see that that uh, doesn't cost me a lot of time or effort to, to make because I have to do it anyway. So that's kind of where I'm trying to find stuff. Um, but I'm still making stuff like the other day I, I, I wrote, I'm also writing posts for Patreon about like what I'm doing with raising animals. So I'll right. have, like, I was animal just hunt. about to ask, uh, we need a new state of the Nutian. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Triturus, uh, Marmoratus, the marble newts are laying like crazy. So I have tons of eggs. Uh, I lost count. I, there's well over, two or 300 eggs. I'm pulling out dozens every day and I ran out of plants cause they just, they fold their, their eggs into leaves. So I have no more plants. So I just started uh, cutting up plastic bags and throwing them in there and they just, and that, at least that way I can watch them develop in the plastic. <laughs> that is super cool. Yeah. Can you film a time-lapse of one? 
Uh, I could. I'm gonna try. I have a macro lens, but I have to do. I have to get a new tripod because the tripod I have is like a huge one for mm-hmm. my DSLR, mm-hmm. and I need one of those like bendy ones that. Yeah. You know. Um, um, gorilla. Pod. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I've I've taken some macro shots of them in the eggs before, um, developing where you can see like their little stabilizers before they have, <laughs> you know, and triturus are a cool looking larva anyway. They're like yellow and black racing stripes when they're yeah yeah you know uh, so yeah so marbled newts and uh uh neurojuris crocatus are laying like crazy right now the black uh lake ermia black spotted uh yellow with yellow spots newt um other than that it's just other the the stuff that spawns all the time axolotls and spanish rib newts and mm-hmm. stuff like that so cool yeah so that's me i think that covers everything gabriel what are you up to um well uh so i finished uh i finished i'm almost finished but i technically finished a commission that i've been working on forever which i cannot really talk much about but it's terrible. it was driving me crazy because it was about so it was a landscape and there were a lot of little geographical details, annoying details about this landscape that I had to get right or the client went crazy. So uh, uh, <laughs> I, it took me a while, but I'm basically done. Yeah. I've been working on that since November, which is very unusual for me because I don't like to take more. Wow, that's a long time. It's, a very, it's, a, it's very, very long. It's too long. And it's also a period of time where I'm not familiar with a period of geographical time. I mean, geographical, geological time oh. that I'm not familiar with. Long, long, long time ago. So, was was it so long because it was long. just endless, just endless rounds of revision? Yeah. Is that, and 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 yeah. one thing I didn't do in this uh, uh, contract did you not, is did you not is that I didn't uh, specify was, how many. Routes, I was going to ask. Yeah, commissions. I yeah. going to how many. I've started. Do, I've started doing do. that. I never used to do, I, but I've started even including that in my wording for like we're having an email conversation about doing avatars. Like, you get one round of revisions, yeah. <laughs> and if you completely hate it after that, that's fine. But you know, yeah, because this that's the reason talk. I haven't commissioned an avatar from you, by the way. <laughs> I already well, I am be... not super thrilled about my own face, and I think like not having the opportunity to really, really improve it would be a serious problem for me. I, you know, I mean, I have uh, a, a good, I have good friends who've done portraiture stuff, and you know, like, look, I get sometimes you don't nail a likeness, and that's fine. If you don't think it looks like you, then I, I understand, and we'll work together to get it sorted out. But, but if it's like. Can you change my shirt? Oh, I changed my haircut. Or, I, you know, like the endless revisions, that's a nightmare, Gabriel. For me, yeah. that's it, a nightmare it scenario. A nightmare. Like I, it, it, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Honestly, most of it. At the beginning, the corrections were fine because, you know, maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. Anyway, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, that was finished, <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. I also finished another commission for a museum that I cannot really discuss about, but it, it involves a place to see mammal that I was looking forward to reconstruct, which is was a, a lot of fun. Um, uh, I am working right now on, I, I wasn't sure if I was able to talk about this, but 
since the publishers tweeted about it uh, recently, I guess I am I'm able it's to... It's free game. Yeah, I, I guess it's free game. Yeah. So I'm working on a new series of books with Ben Garrett and illustrating them. And I'm very excited about that. It's, it's a lot of really cool, really cool uh, animals and, and cool um, periods of time to illustrate. Too. So I, I'm happy about that. So I'm working on that. That's going to be very my cool. main... Because a series of several books and that's going to be my main... Um, the main thing I'm going to be working for this year, and I'm also going to be working on another large project um, that involves dinosaurs that I cannot talk about also during this year. And uh, I am going to be working on another another project that you might see more, more <laughs> towards, probably towards the end of the summer uh, that also involves uh, dinosaurs. I can say that it's, this is a smaller thing, but I'm doing several illustrations for it, and it's mostly I'm licensing. Actually, today uh, today is today is what April twenty fourth. I tweeted today some yep. um, uh, illustrations of Peruvian dinosaurs that I'm licensing for this project because I was commissioned mm. to illustrate some, and I was also I'm also licensing some pre pre existing illustrations that I done for this project. Um, so that's going to be a cool one that's probably going to be out at the end of the summer or the end of the fall. And How about the book? The books, I'm not sure exactly when they're going to be out, but I think it's towards the end of this year and next year. Yeah, your book. Oh, no, 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 oh, no, no sorry. Book. The Journey to yes. the Mesozoic. My book, yes. Uh, I've been working on that, but I haven't, you know, I, it's difficult to, what I was telling Ethan, that you have to find time to do your own project. This is my own project. And uh, it's not always easy to find time because you're, busy doing the things that you know give you money to eat so uh oh i i don't know what that's like <laughs> at all <laughs> so yeah I'm, I'm still making a progress on it the, the problem with a book like the one that i'm doing is that we all know science changes and, and, and evolves as you go and uh, if that is true for herpetology or ornithology is 10 times more in paleontology because just basic things especially when people keep publishing birds that are actually lizards exactly <laughs> i know and like recently like, there was this really cool paper about the postures of sauropods so now i have to change the postures of all my sauropods and i i tell you what i could not spot the difference in the picture that you posted really? no, there's, a, there's a big difference there's a big difference did I see you drawing a uh, Smilodon the other day? Yeah, that too? was just a that was a, a personal sketch project. Thing. That was a personal yeah. sketch. Yeah. yeah, I'm doing that. So uh, this is I wanted to ask quickly because sometimes you do speed sketches and your speed sketches are better than my like if I were to work on something for eight months, your speed sketches are still better. Um, and you now say that you've been working on this one commission for seven. Six months. Yeah. Well, it was towards the end. I, I it, we started discussing about it on November, the end of November. I started working on it like probably in the middle of December, and then I took vacation. So, so five months. Yes. Yeah, yeah five, four months. To so say does it have like a bajillion animals on it? Because it has numerous animals. Crazy. Uh, it's the revisions. It's, it's the, the revision, revisions. But also the, the, it, piece, yeah. the, that piece is four meter. <laughs> Four meter long by two meters wide. Oh. So uh, I tried to. It, it made my computer really struggle 
And that was another <laughs> issue that, you know, I was having that. You were, yeah, you were saying your Cintiq was uh, uh, on About its way. to be retired. Yeah, yeah. And, and also when you open it, this was a huge file. Like I, I, I yeah. try, I had to break it in sections and work on it on separate sections because what's uh you work all raster yeah. right you work in yeah. photoshop so what's the what dpi are you using for a so piece like that i was that? using a 200 dpi for this one which 200? is huge oh that's low yeah that yeah that's lower than i would have thought though but but i had to at the end to make the final arrangements there i had to I put it at 300 mm -hmm. and it was my marriage because because <laughs> if you imagine a four you know i I have, or even I was trying to work uh, and, you know, flatten layers, flatten layers, flatten layers all the time. Yeah. Still, you know, when you have a lot of detail, because the piece was detailed, there was a, well, I'm not going to say what it is, but it, it's just very detailed piece um, with a lot of trees and stuff. It was, it makes it, it made it, you know, let's just say, to, to give you an example of how annoying this was. A big part <laughs> of the, of the, because I have to say it, I mean, it's not, yeah. The, the river, there was a river, and then I had to get the right exact shape of the waves that the that the water would have left on the sand. Oh. Ew. That to that level. For 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 ichnological <laughs> yeah. reasons? No, not for ichnological reasons, yeah. but for geological reasons. So mm. how the water leaves certain kinds of uh, uh, um, dune shapes in the in the river. I had okay. to get the exact okay. dune shape produced by a certain flow of water, which yeah. was particularly. Uh, I have never done that something gonna, like that before. So I'm going to stick with cartoons because you know I get. I to find cheat. not drawing to be extremely efficient. <laughs> <laughs> It's well, not entirely true. I do a lot of illustration stuff now. But. So, you know, I, I was going to say, you know, you say that, but I, I think there's a lot more overlap between the, the scientists that I've met and the artists that I've met than there is. Yeah, there is. Uh, yeah. There is yeah between else. your average show. Yeah. I mean, we spend a lot of time making figures and, and drawing because even for some of those figures like, are even good. Now you don't see them much living, drawing living stuff like in. That. Living in poverty and not valued by society. Uh, you know. Various scientist illustrator overlap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I was going to say is that yeah, that's one of the reasons why I haven't been able to make as much progress in my book as I wanted. And but I'm still working on it, and I still hope, you know, uh, to get it done this year. Um, it's honestly, to be honest, one of the things yeah. that is taking longer for me in the book is writing. I am. I am a fast artist, but I think by most means, I consider myself a, a, a speedy artist, but I'm a super slow writer, okay? It takes me forever to write a sentence. So yeah. um, that is what the- I'm the same. I'm the same, uh, same way. Uh, I, I used to attribute the art thing to, to having a background in animation because I was drawing, you know, <laughs> to make a second of animation, you have to do like 12 to 24 yeah. drawings. So you, you develop a speed, but the writing thing, 
I have to yeah. be in the right frame frame of mind, or it just doesn't happen. Yeah, you know? I, I don't. It doesn't come natural to me at all. Plus, you know, the fact that you know I write in English, so I have to double check that everything is written correctly, and 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 then it's 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 not easy. So I am. Yeah, writing in a language that's not your mother tongue sucks. Yeah. I also like it takes me. I I spend forty minutes per email if I'm have to, having to write a German email. Because it takes me forever to reread and read and check everything, make sure that everything's correct. And then my partner, who is German, looks at it and she goes, This is terrible. Let me write it for you. So she winds up writing quite a lot of my emails. Well, that's yeah, handy. handy. Yeah. It is handy. So, I mean, uh, well, it sounds like you're going to be busy for a long, long time. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what, I, what, I, what I'm... Yeah, and, and actually, I just got recently contacted for possibly working on a, on a different project for that is going to be a long project as well. So I'm happy, but so I'm going to be pretty busy, but I'm happy. What about you, Mark? What, what have you been doing? Oh, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Fish! I have... Mostly fish, yeah. I've been working on a lot of different fish projects, none of which I'm really allowed to talk about. But they vary from uh, genomics, sort of applied genomics stuff, to taxonomy. Um, and recently I, I reconstructed the entire taxonomic history of one group of fish, and it was agony. Agony. <laughs> because the first thing that happened was this name was described, and then it was literally forgotten about for 60 years. Wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, other people have been describing things that were synonyms of this original thing. It's a mess. Oh, that's it's a huge that's mess. Fun. These are all cichlids still? These are cichlids, yeah. Yeah. So cichlid taxonomy is really interesting because they there are a lot of hobbyist taxonomists, which is very mm -hmm. different from herpetology. Most herpetolog herpetological taxonomists are serious about it they might not be good at it but they're at least serious about it um whereas the fish people there is a wide variety in terms of how committed they are to most of them have only ever described one species and it was just because they were doing a molecular phylogeny they discovered something was new and they thought okay well we can do this now uh, some of the descriptions are really 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 atrocious um, and they also do very weird things that I didn't know about. So in herpetology, you describe the holotype in excruciating detail. And you don't give very much detail on the rest of the specimen series. And this probably mostly arises from the fact that we herpetologists have at our disposal small series of animals. So we have like five specimens. The holotype is the most important one. It's the one that carries the name. We want to describe it in detail so that in future we can compare very carefully and then we have another four specimens that we describe in the variation section, which is like a paragraph or two paragraphs. Whereas in the fish people, they never describe the holotype at all, but they describe the species in general terms based on the type series. And they list the holotype usually separately in the tables in terms of its okay. specific counts and measurements. Okay. So your description is very general. It includes uh, the variation, but it lacks in terms of the specificity about the holotype, which is the only part that matters for the name. Yeah, so that must um, create all kinds of taxonomic issues if you're trying to rewrite. huge problems, yeah. and they don't they, they don't seem to be aware of this problem. But, oh, yeah, people. it's a 
Yeah, fish people are very weird. Anyway, so I'm doing all kinds of fish things, um, trying to, to get that working. I'm also applying for new positions uh, because my contract ends in October. Of course, with the current situation, as we're calling it, um, it's possible that my contract might get extended or something else. I don't know. It uh, depends sort of on a review of how my work is going and, and stuff. I was originally going to be starting to teach as of uh, Monday next week, but our course has been delayed until July because we're not allowed into the building um, or only very few of us are allowed into the building. So as a result of that, that entire thing has been restructured and shifted and it was originally supposed to, it's like, it's, it's a lab course, right? And it's impossible to teach students in the lab if they're not allowed in the lab, which is the current situation. Um, so what that's probably going to mean is that our, the course that we're instead going to offer is going to be mostly, um, bioinformatics sort of, uh, genome studying, comparative phylogenetic evolution, uh, comparative morphology type of stuff. So, um, I have some cool ideas of projects that we're going to do with that. And uh, in fact, next week, so today is the 24th of April, as you've already mentioned, uh, on Monday, I there is starting a course in vertebrate morphology at my old university, where I was formerly employed, the Technical University of Braunschweig. Um, and for the last three years, I've been a co-instructor on that course. And uh, this year I am, in fact, again, Fortunately, because I don't have to actually physically be there, um, I can act as a co-instructor again on that course. So I'm going to be uh, helping to teach students about morphology and um, statistical analysis and, and real data gathering. Because um, the whole point of that project is basically, or, or that, that course is sort of to give students an introduction not only to the basics of morphology, what do animals really look like and what do the structures mean, but also like, if you're going to do it at a museum specimen based scientific inquiry research project, uh, how would you go about gathering that data? How would you analyze it and all that stuff? So that's really cool. Um, other than that, I have been enjoying home office other than the fact that I had a very uncomfortable chair until last week. Um, it has been a new and interesting challenge. Uh, but fortunately, my partner and I have faced it relatively well. Uh, she defended her PhD yesterday, and it was amazing. It was really, really great. So, yes, I'm very proud of her. Um, and, um, yeah, she also had a, a paper published that was covered in all kinds of media stuff because they taught bats to make different sounds. But that's not related to herpetology. So, um, in the meantime, I have, since the last episode, published uh, four new papers slash... I've actually published only one new paper. We have three papers in press that will definitely be published fully by the time this episode airs. Um, which are, firstly... Uh, the description of a beautiful new frog called Platypeus ranzumena. Um, it's from the east coast of Madagascar. Like, if you look at it on a leaf, it looks very dull. It's sort of brown and round and soft. And um, But if it moves, if it walks, you see these crazy dark red flash markings on its body. Um, and in fact, if you kill the frog and preserve it in ethanol for... Uh, 20 years, those red markings are still there, oh, which is crazy. That means that this... That's interesting. Exactly. This is very uh, unusual. You, Usually red goes you know away about, really uh, quickly. 
uh, uh, Luca Mellis, right? The, yes, uh, of course. So yeah. there are all kinds of silly um, species names based on uh, incorrect um, coloration interpretation because the specimens were collected. They yeah. were one color, let's say blue, and they turned, let's say, yellow in preservative. And suddenly you have something like Luca Mellis or you have the case of... Um, uh, Bufus luteus, which is a green frog, but luteus means yellow. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this happens all the time. Um, but in this case, it's a red something super stable, ethanol stable at least. Um, that is dark, dark like did, blood red. Did you use it in the diagnostic um, characters? Yes, it is. It's super diagnostic. But I mean, did yeah. you use it in your diagnosis of the species? Because yeah. because. Uh, uh, but I mean, like the coloration in, in preservative, because I, I, I even for some stuff like the the blast frogs, the coloration in preservative can be used as a diagnostic feature. Oh, interesting. No, I don't think we did that because uh, the other like the closest related species also have a little bit of red. Okay. Um, the thing is that they're they tend to like they keep the red-ish color, but it's not a, it's not like this. It's not like deep blood red um so it's a, just a beautiful frog the cool thing is as i said we we have these specimens from 20 years ago the first specimen of this frog was collected in 1994 and um it has been 26 years in the description process that the first manuscript was started i think in 1995 um and the reason for that is that it's very closely related to another frog, and we couldn't figure out what the relationship is between those two different species until we had enough samples. And now finally we have enough sampling, we have the genetics for it, cleared up the problem, and basta, new species. And we discovered another lineage along the way that is also a new species, but it's even more similar to the other frog, which is a pain in the ass. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're a really challenging group. Um, so there's that one. And then there's this new paper by uh, Mirales et al. Or Mirai et al. Um, published in, in, or it's in press in Systematic Biology, which is cool because it's my highest ranking paper yet. Um, and the paper is called Repositories for Taxonomic Data, Where We Are and What is Missing. And this paper is a really big deal for me, not just because it is like my highest ranking paper. I'm only fourth author, so it's like fourth among 20 authors Whoa. or so. Um, so it's not that like important a position, but actually the whole paper draws on a grant proposal that I submitted actually as my original PhD proposal um, that was rejected. But then they took we took this, the pieces of this and um, restructured it, resubmitted it under a different form by different people, and then it went through. And now this is sort of the result of that. So I have had a very important role in the sort of um, um, conceptualization of the project and, and development of it through the years. So it's been really cool, and we think, we hope that it will get very um, well cited because we talk about, we sort of review all the different kinds of data that are being published by taxonomists of all fields. 
Like how much image data are they producing? How many micro CT scans are they using? Whole genome analysis? Are they doing um, basic genetics? Are they combining different kinds of? Are they using um, uh, like stereo microscopy or like microscope imagery or blah blah blah? So um, quantification of that, and then an assessment of what are the available repositories for, for putting that data somewhere and how, in what way do they fail to meet the requirements of the taxonomist? Um, and a lot of them do. In fact, all of them fail in at least one aspect um, to meet what we need. GenBank is probably the best. It is the most permanent. It is most widely used. It has a good taxonomy behind it. It's like super accessible, but um, it has a few caveats, which I don't remember what they are, but there are some. Um, so that's a, that's really cool. And I, I hope that people will enjoy looking at that and reading that. Um, another relatively important paper that we have published or, or coming soon, it's accepted and, uh, we have the proofs coming back and forth is, um, by, um, um my colleague, uh, Louis Ronciac and us, we, the group, uh, another large number of authors where we have used um, targeted enrichment DNA sequencing to um, get DNA from museum specimens that are over 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And we have put them into a phylogeny to figure out their relationships. These are um, Mantidactylus subgenus Mantidactylus, the largest frogs in Madagascar. They're very large. They taste like fish. And um, uh, I well, have, so you so you you've started already. I, this, I have uh, eaten class. this particular thing. So we describe <laughs> a new species in this paper as well, um, which is the one that I've eaten. Um, but in general, they are um, they're very very cool frogs, and they've been a taxonomic nightmare because there are several names in many places. There are two different genetic lineages. They are morphologically, even though they're huge super samey and um, because we didn't know which lineage things were belonging to everything was getting confused along the it's way so this clears that all up morphologically conservative yeah. yeah yeah exactly i mean they, they did did what they needed to do they are huge omnivores they will eat anything they're not really omnivores but they're they're predators of a of a, a generalistic nature and they will eat anything small enough to fit into their mouths and even try to eat things that are sometimes a little bit bigger than their mouths um but that makes them very versatile and uh, in some places highly abundant which has unfortunately attracted rather a lot of attention for for eating them and um they are probably threatened in some areas but yeah, it's uh, that's a really cool paper as well, and I'm hoping that that will also get relatively well cited because we use a sort of new approach um, where you fish specifically for mitochondrial DNA using um, this targeted enrichment thing, which allows you to be very cheap about how you go about the method. Um, otherwise, it becomes extremely expensive if you're trying to get like whole whole genome type of sequencing. And finally, um, we have a new paper that's going to describe another species of uh, Platypelis that's from uh, Sorata in northern Madagascar. 
And um, I don't know exactly when that's going to be published, so I can't talk about it in too much detail. But um, basically clarifying some relationships. It's a small greenish, yellowish, microhylid tree frog. <laughs> and um, they're, they're all quite samey, but it's, it's always fun to be involved in describing those things. And I'm expecting several other papers to be accepted soon or at least to come back from review. So I have a WASP paper that I've mentioned in the past that should be come back from review any day now and another frog paper um, that I've just sent back. So I'm hoping it will get accepted in the next few days. So all kinds of stuff going on in terms of non-fish related manuscripts. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Um, also, since the last episode, I appeared on the Chameleon Academy podcast twice. So it used to be called the Chameleon Breeder Podcast, but now it's called the Chameleon Academy Podcast. And I wanted to give Bill uh, Bill Strand a shout out because he has been doing uh, a daily blog type uh, episode. So he does he's releasing episodes every day where he's talking about chameleon husbandry during the lockdown in California. Um and it's really cool. So he's talking about all kinds of issues um, with much more than his usual. I mean, usually he's releasing episodes every week, but his new things are very um, structured and, and uh, yeah, really cool. And uh, the two episodes that I appeared on, one of them was talking about what is a species, because I don't know why, but he asked me that question, which is a crazy question to ask for a chameleon-centered podcast, because like... <laughs> I was like, you don't want to listen to a two-hour thing for that. Did you, you have to uh, did you, mate's podcast. That's <laughs> did you quote our Did you quote our friend uh, Darren there? What is What is Darren's um, quote? His His is uh, it's whatever the hell we want it to mean. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yeah. Essentially, <laughs> essentially, yeah. yeah, yeah. Species are an illusion. Subspecies doubly so. I think that's the <laughs> that's the important one. Uh, and the second episode was actually, so, so I've recorded both of them at the same time. Um, the second episode was talking about the new species of chameleons that we described and that, that I had already mentioned on the last one of these works in progress things. So we described these new chameleons and the chameleon people wanted to know about them. So I explained to them how you identify them and what they look like and all that stuff. And finally, one last piece of chameleon conversation <laughs> is that I have published yesterday or the day before yesterday a little article um, answering a kid's question about what happens to uh, chameleon coloration while they're sleeping. Um, can chameleons change color in their sleep? Which is a great question. And um, I answered that on The Conversation, which is a thing where people do deep dives and all kinds of science outreach and stuff and um short answer yes it's already stimulated <laughs> the short answer is yes but not voluntarily and we have no idea how because they can do chameleons can do things with their coloration while they're sleeping that they can't do when they're awake or that's what i thought but it's actually maybe not entirely that but simple do they, do they, um hmm. cuz a lot of lizards so a if you shine lizards, a shine a torch a, a flashlight yeah, so all of them go brighter. Um, the thing is that chameleons, when you shine a torch on a, sh a sleeping chameleon, it will darken on the surface that you shine the torch on. By torch, I, of course, mean flashlight for you American listeners. If you, however, were to put, for example... <laughs> you torch in a pitchfork. Yeah. If you were to, for example... 
tape a small Batman symbol to the side of the chameleon and then shine the light on it and then take the Batman symbol off, you would get the negative of the Batman symbol on the side. And the reason for that is that the skin apparently autonomously changes color when bright light is shone on it. Did you? Okay, so not herpetology related, but there is a paper that came out a few years ago, and I don't have it to hand, but about uh, cephalopods' skin being able to sense light, effectively use their skin to see their surroundings, and that affected their camouflage sort of on an involuntary Basis. Well, it, make, it makes yeah, sense. I think that's one if, of the. I would think that it makes sense that once, if your skin is so dependent for transmitting messages, right, which is in the case of chameleons and cephalopods, that you would have yeah, some sort of autonomous some system. system. Get it yeah. way. So automate this, automate this process, automate this process. Yes, I think this is actually a coincidence, actually. So, mm. um, what someone pointed out in the comments, which I think is a really important observation, is that a basking chameleon, where the side of the chameleon is facing the sun, let's say in the evening, the side that's facing the sun will also be, I think in this case, brighter. Really? So it's kind of the opposite. But yeah, so it'll be brighter than the than the other side. Because usually basking lizards are darker. No, no, it will yeah. be darker. It'll be darker. And what's cool is when you take the arm away, so if you lift the arm, you see that patch mm -hmm. that was not exposed to the sun, and that patch is bright. Mm -hmm. So they do exhibit this also during the day, and I hadn't remembered that they do this during the day. Um, but I think that's the main reason is that this is an autonomous effect for basking. It probably maximizes the heat uh, absorption and reflectance um, for the chameleons to use. Well, basking, basking uh, is usually that kind of resource. Dark. Like I know yes. they turn bright. When you shine a light on them, they turn darker. Yeah, but when, uh, now I'm going to try to do that with anolis and see if you if you if you can if you can see an anolis becoming darker under with a flashlight at night. Yeah, it's very probable. If if it's true in anoles, that would be really cool because that would show that this is well, a more widespread thing. I mean, we talked to crested geckos earlier, and they're they're definitely known to to quote unquote fire up. And night. not just that, uh, if you, as uh, Dave Hone, I think you mentioned Dave Hone earlier, um, mm -hmm. he at some point posted a picture of a crested gecko that had been underneath a grill and light had been shone on it. Yes. And it had the negative of the grill on its skin. Right. From and that they're not light. normally so, thought of as a camouflage. Right. That color change isn't really a camouflage thing. It's, it's and something it's at else. A, the most important thing is that it's at a, a physiological scale that the animal is not capable of controlling consciously. It's like an right. automatic right? process. Chameleons cannot change their their color in the way that people depict it. Like not like the way that entangled <laughs> Pascal changes his color to look like the flowers behind him or whatever. Yes. Um, but rather, it, you know, they don't have that level of control that a cephalopod, for example, has. Um, Whereas when you shine this light on it, that that skin at the at the skin level is apparently able to have that control, which is really cool. I wonder yeah. if, if and yeah, we don't and understand I, I, at I all how that works. 
seeing it in geckos, I would assume it goes yeah. pretty far I mean, back. If it's in geckos, yeah. it's yeah. anything else that yeah. it changes coloration. You just reminded yeah. me. Yeah. It, it reminds totally. me that in the subject that we're going to talk about today, I wonder if that occurs as well. Because I'm thinking of the geckos that I have in my balcony, talking about my balcony again. I have I have a couple of, <laughs> there's a couple of Emidakis, Maburia, uh, that live there, like in every other building yep. in the city. And and uh, yeah. during the day, I mean, like those movies is pretty dark with dark pants. At night, it's almost white. And that happens a lot in a lot of geckos. Totally. So I wonder if, if, if yeah. that also occurs. Well, like I said, like I said, almost all the... It also the happens in a lot of frogs. They refer... Well, in, in, you know, people who keep them, they call it firing up because yeah. they get more color. So when you're selling crested geckos, you always want to take pictures of them when they're, you know, out at night as opposed to sleeping during the day when they look like crap. Yeah, how most totally. people are going to see them. Yeah, which is exactly, yeah. All right. Well, that I mean that covers it. I I think I've I've talked quite long enough about all the crap that I've been going through but, here. I've been also been playing a lot of ping pong, but you know. But it's a good <laughs> so, segue into our, our subject of today. It is a great segue. So we are going to be talking about Europlatus, the best geckos. So what do you want to know? Well, tell us. I have tell a plan. us everything about Europlatus. Why they are related to a right. family they're in. So. All right. Start with natural history. So Europlatus, uh, which of course comes from the Greek uro, meaning tail, and platos, meaning flat, flat tailed or leaf tailed geckos, are native to and exclusive to the island of Madagascar. Now, some of you might have heard of this island before. It is substantial in size and diversity. And um, Europlatus are one of the things that make it such a cool place to do all kinds and, of research. And let's say that Europlatus are true geckos, because we, a lot of times we use geckos in the, in the biggest are, sense of the word. Indeed. Indeed. So yeah. Europlatus are geconid geckos of, interestingly enough, entirely uncertain affiliations. Hmm. So there have been various different papers that have attempted in the context of larger phylogenetic surveys on geckos as a whole or on geconid geckos to place the various genera in context to find out which things that they are most closely related to, Europlatus have defied all attempts. In fact, I was told, and I'm not sure whether this was in confidence or not, but I'm going to assume not, sorry Aaron if not, by a certain Aaron Bauer, (laughs) Uh, that even when throwing large amounts of sequence data, and we're talking like thousands of loci, at this problem, they still could not find to which animals Europlatus were closest related. That means Europlatus might represent an independent colonization of the island of Madagascar, which would be really cool. In fact, geckos have landed on Madagascar many, many, many times. Aliens. <laughs> yes, aliens with the shaky hands. How many hands. genera of, of, of geckos um, you have in Madagascar? Oh, buttloads. Uh, do you want me to list <laughs> them? Just give me like an approximate. No. <laughs> okay, we have Matoa Toa, Ebonavia, Felsuma, Ligodactylus, uh, Paradura, Paragahyra. Um, we have Gahyra and Hemidactylus. We have. Um, have I mentioned Europlatus no. yet? No. Europlatus. Blacidactylus. No. Um, 
we have... Am I missing something? You said per Peridura. I mentioned Peridura. I said Ebenavia. Yeah. Wait, let's put that in the, in the reptile mm. database. Yeah. I think it's about 10. Am I missing something? Wait, uh, let's go. Okay, so I'm seeing here 121 species, the sky species. Yep, yeah, you didn't mention Blesodactylus? I did mention Blesodactylus. Yeah, he did. Yes, it used to be Homophilus, but now it's Blesodactylus. AKA Velvet, Velvet geckos. geckos. They bite like a motherfucker. Yes. Although they're actually not super aggressive. <laughs> like, I handled some um, that were not super I aggressive. I handled some that would want to absolutely kill you. Gemma. What am I missing? Uh, the work I'm counting Europlatus, Tosuma, uh, Paradura, uh, Paragaira, Paragaira, Matuatura, Ligodactylus, Hemidactylus, Gecolepis. Gecolepis, you didn't mention Gecolepis. Ah, Gecolepis is the one. Of all the ones that he couldn't mention, Oops. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. All right. I was going to say, I told you before that one of the worst bites I ever got from a lizard was from a felsuma. Oh, yeah. Felsuma, uh, felsuma have incredibly strong jaws. It it bit me between, like, the web between oh, my fingers and then barrel rolled like a little tiny crocodile. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you what. Blacidactylus also have this crazy thing where skin can just slough right off their bodies, which sucks. Um, yeah. Anyway, so within Madagascar, we have these 11 separate genera. We know, of course, that Hemidactylus and Gehyra are relatively recent um, uh, arrivals on the island. And the others have sort of arrived at various different times. And some of them have speciated. So, for example, Ebenavia is relatively closely related to Peridura and also to, uh, I think, Matoa Toa is, is within that group as well. Um, yeah, so we have, uh, and Felsuma, of course, but Felsuma and Ligodactylus arrived on Madagascar independently, and probably Ligodactylus has actually colonized Madagascar multiple times, uh, or Madagascar, it was like Madagascar back to Africa, back to Madagascar, mm -hmm. then to South America, and also to, so Ligodactylus is crazy. We have a student working on Ligodactylus right now, which is, it's a very, very interesting project. Geckos uh, are extremely awesome colonizers. So it's not They're so very good colonizers. Exceptions include species that are super restricted to rainforest and uh, are relatively, let's say, sensitive to habitat change. And among those are, for example, Europlatus. So what makes Europlatus so special? Well, uh, they have very weird morphological features. Their eyes constrict to four dot pinholes when they are um, completely, so during the day in the light, they are of course all nocturnal. They are all hyper arboreal. Um, they have a flattened tail, dorsoventrally flattened tail in all cases. But interestingly, the genus Europlatus can be sort of divided into four different groups. Those four different groups are the leaf-like leaf-tailed geckos, which are um, often called the Europlatus ebenaui species group. The ebenaui species group includes the species Europlatus fetsi, fiera, finaritra, finiavana, 
Fuzzi Vava, I named about four of those species. Uh, <laughs> these are uh, and, and commonly called uh, the the the, the satanic. satanic. Well, it depends. So, so the satanic species is is Fantasticus, which I hadn't mentioned yet. Also, Malama is in there, um, and so they're right. Fantasticus is the satanic leaf-tailed gecko. Finaratra is the giant satanic leaf-tailed gecko. And then you have these whole group that are often called the spear-tailed or spear-point mm-hmm. leaf-tailed geckos. Those are the ones that are surrounding um, Ebanawi, which has a very short um, uh, spear-like tail. Um, things like Finiavana actually have an intermediate tail in size between um, Fantasticus and Ebanawi. And it's quite interesting because there doesn't seem to be a clear pattern in terms of size of tail evolution. They've gotten big tails independently twice at least, and uh, small tails have also then interspersed in those things. So tail size within the leaf-like Europlatus is highly labile. And all of these leaf-like ones, they don't have a fringe around their body. They have a horizontally compressed body, so vertically elevated, quite deep body, and they are, um, they live among leaves, they are, so all Europlatus are insectivores, um, but, oh, well, I say insectivores, they're really invertebrivores, because they also really love snails, and in fact, if you keep them in captivity, it's advised, especially for females, that you feed them snails, because they have calcium. high calcium, calcium. requirement. Yep. And as far as we know, it's a bit iffy. They might not use UV, but we think that they do still need UV for a little bit of the calcium processing. So my recommendation is always to keep them with some UV. Um, I personally have only ever kept Europlatus guntheri in captivity. So that brings us actually to the second species group. Um, I've kept uh, Sikore before. Oh, really? Okay, so that's the yeah. third species group. And the fourth species group is Europlatus lineatus, which is its own thing. So um, just briefly to embark on these different groups, the um, Gunthri group, which includes Gunthri, Aluaudi, um, and Peachmoney, and also Malahilu, which people almost never talk about because it's very, very rare. It's found only in southeast Madagascar. Um, those four species are quite basic in terms of Europlatus body plan. They all So all Europlatus have very specialized feet. They have um, a, a divided lamellae with a claw in the middle and um, a very characteristic sort of uh, rounded toe tip that is entirely that's the 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 lamellae are restricted to the toe tip as far as I understand, and um, so the Gunthery group are also not they are um, bark mimicking geckos, and they vary from the not very good at bark mimicking Europlatus Gunthery to the unbelievably good bark mimicking Europlatus peach money, which is also called the cork bark leaf tail gecko. And called that because if you put one on cork, it disappears. You'll never find it. <laughs> it is yeah. incredible. There yeah. are photos on the internet that have four of these geckos in one picture, and you cannot see a single one of them because their camouflage is so incredible. And what's interesting about that is that that seems to be a convergent extreme with the next species group, which was the Sikare species group. 
So all of the Gunthery group do not have a fringe around the body, but they have a dorsoventrally compressed or slightly compressed, typically a rather roundish body profile. And then come the Europlatus uh, Sicarae species group, or Europlatus Fimbriata species group is a better name for it because Fimbriatus yeah, is older. Fimbriatus yeah. is the oldest species in the genus and is in fact one of the first reptiles that was described from Madagascar, described by Schneider in 1797. Very are this, old are also, one of, also one of the largest geckos. Yeah, it is. Yes. Sorry, what did you say, Gabriel? Uh, are these formal groups or are these? I mean, do they have? These a are informal groups, but they're also phylogenetically supported. Okay. So the the Fimbriatus species group includes one undescribed species, which is called Candidate Eleven, um, but it also includes Europlatus fimbriatus, Europlatus giganteus. Henkeli, and then Samaiti and Sikare. This is my second favorite group of Europlates, uh, very close to my first, which we haven't talked about yet. Yes. So they are incredible because they have uh, skin flaps around their entire bodies. They also on the chin, and they use those skin flaps. As I said, they're dorsoventrally flattened. They often have a very broad paddle-like tail. Um it's important to mention all Europlatus can drop their tail. They've confined the autotomy region to the first three vertebrae of the tail. Mm-hmm. So they can only drop it in one place at the top of the tail. Mm-hmm. And only certain groups can regenerate the tail. So all of the Fantasticus Ebenawi group cannot regenerate their tail. But the Sicarae group can, the um, Lineatus group can, and the um, uh, uh, Gunthery group can-ish. So they they can sort of make a sort of round bubble type thing. Um, Sorry, the Fimbriatus group, yes. So the other thing that Fimbriatus have that they are well, or they are relatively famous among osteologists because they have the most teeth of all tetrapods. They have very, very, very many teeth. So you never want to have to illustrate the skull of one. Um, (laughs) They also, their bite is surprisingly powerful considering that their head is very broad and paddle shaped. Um, I don't know why that is, but they really chomp down when they do. They are... So the um, uh, Fimbriata species group are... So all of these species are or almost all of these species are rainforest dwellers. The exceptions are in the Ebenawi group, uh, in, sorry, in the um, Gunthery species group, these bark-like geckos. There are some that are found deep in rainforest, but, Eben, uh, but Europlatus Gunthery itself is found in dry forests in Western Madagascar. And um, in fact, Europlatus Ebenawi is also found in quite dry forests in Northwestern Madagascar. And finally, there is, of course, Europlatus lineatus, which is a, also called the bamboo leaf-tailed gecko. And it is a weird-ass gecko. So oh, they have eyelashes above their eyes, usually two different spikes. Some people think that the, the form that has a white line as above its eyebrow is a separate species from Marajeji. That's not true. It's genetically identical to everything else. But it is um, 
Mm, they are very large geckos as well. So mm. I didn't mention, but uh, Ethan, you briefly mentioned Europlatus fimbriatus and in fact Europlatus giganteus. Uh, giganteus is the longest of all extant geckos. Yeah. And possibly it's, it's also as, the it's heaviest. It's bulky as, yeah. Yeah, so it competes with uh, Rachidactylus <sighs> lichianus for, he- for, for, for weight. But in terms of length, because it has a huge it's, tail, it yeah, is longer. much longer than lichianus. And lichies have, like, pathetic tiny tails. Yes, lichies yeah, have so. stubs of tails. But in many respects, actually, the, the Rachidactylus have converged similar on a similar sort of, of camouflage strategy to what the Europlatus use, especially because with Europlatus, if you look at a microscope image of a, let's say, two by two centimeters square of their skin, you can see that almost no two pixels or scales are the same color. And they have all this mottling and they often look like they're covered in lichen, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And the same strategy is employed by many different um, geckos from New Caledonia, among which are, of course, Rachidactylus. So there, there are several other groups, in fact, also Chahua geckos yeah. uh, also have this crazy coloration pattern that is enabled by having these very fine granular scales. And, and um, uh, Trachyrhynchus, I think, too. Mm-hmm. It does that. Yeah. So... Uh, another really cool thing about Europlatus is that they, uh, especially in the Ebenawi group, they have, or specifically actually in the Ebenawi group, they have a very clear sexual dimorphism in the tail because the tail of females has a smooth edge to it and the tail of males looks like it's been bitten by ants or, or chewed out by other things. And it's really, really strong. So you can tell in a hatchling instantly if it's going to be a male or a female, depending on whether or not it has these um, chunks taken out of its tail. So one quick which question. Which is very cool. Um, the the uh, so Lineatus is the only one that is a monotypic lineage, right? Like the yes. other ones are... Okay. Yeah. And Lineatus is completely different from everything else in many respects. It's much more gracile, yeah, very yeah. fine limbs. That's what yeah. I like. It it's, such a have, it's spidery looking. It's super almost. elegant. Yeah. It's super elegant. Yeah. The, and so, it doesn't have fringes along any of its body either. No, it looks just like... It just has okay, a very so fine tail. I would imagine, uh, I know, it lives like in bamboos and grass and thinner yes. trunks, right? So that's why it evolved that both the coloration and the body type. Because it's, it's yeah. elongated and it has stripes. Which I mean, other... so so we should mention that these are some of the best camouflaged of all squamates. Um, in fact, I would say among terrestrial animals, they are yeah. easily among the best. Uh, as I mentioned already, uh, Europlatus peachmanii, if you put them on a cork, which of course doesn't occur in their natural environment, but there are all kinds of other crazy trees um, where they do occur, they are phenomenally well camouflaged. So that is one thing that's so interesting about them because the whole group are highly, highly camouflaged. So their evolutionary strategy as a group is to hide from all the predators. But at some point along the way, one group was like, oh, we should look like leaves. And the other group was like, oh, let's look like trees. 
And yet uh, they're all very, very closely related to each other or relatively closely related to each other. And, and totally different camouflage strategies. What, what is Lineares? I had a Lineares a long, long time ago. What is Lineares' natural habitat? It's bamboo forest, thick so it's bamboo forest. vertical, which is why it has those long stripes. What amazes yes. me about this, and the reason why I'm talking about it is because this is a pattern, and this is comes, okay, this is what I sometimes try to explain to people, and this comes in handy for a paleo illustrator like me, because there are these patterns in nature that repeat, 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 repeat. Of course. The coloration of these geckos repeats in most groups of lizards. You have species that are mottled that are mottled and blotched for camouflage against leaves and vegetation. And then taxa that live in long uh, grasses, grasses or yeah. Yeah. have this type of striped coloration, like usually with a, with a lateral or dorsolateral light stripe. Yeah. It repeats yeah. over and over and over. So, so interestingly, there is a sexual dimorphism within Europlatus sicarae which is that males, well, it's actually not a dimorphism, it's dichromatism, which is that males have a vertical stripe going down their body and females don't. Hmm. So you can actually sex them also upon hatching as to what, by, by judging whether or not they have this, this um, uh, vertical body stripe. That must be nice if you're breeding them because... Very convenient. Yeah, it's convenient because most geckos, it's like you pull out a you know a jeweler's loop and you're looking for pores and it's like, well, maybe there's a pore there. So that's the nice thing about your platys. You can sell them before sexual maturity and be relatively sure which sex you're you're trading. Yeah, nice. Um, They don't have anal spurs, this... Cloacal spurs? They have small cloacal like bulges. Uh, well, I mean, they have very clear hemipedial bulges once they reach maturity. It doesn't happen for no, a but year. Like, but like, the yeah. spurs themselves that you're talking about, no, they don't have, or or they do have them, but they're not seemingly sexually dimorphic. Okay. Um, I wanted to mention, so taxonomically, there's a lot going on in Europlatus still. Um, not for much longer. But there is still, so currently we're at 19 species. I think I've mentioned all of them now by name. Um, There are two more species coming. They are already, we've already been talking about them in in publications. They're called Candidate 3 and Candidate 4. And uh, that paper will hopefully be coming out at the end of this year, maybe early next year. And then the only species that we know of that remains unaddressed is uh, is candidate 11, which is also called Af Henkeli. It's in the pet trade. Um, it's from Montana d'Ombra in that region in northern Madagascar. And it's, it's taxonomically tricky because morphologically it's intermediate between Sikorae and Henkeli. And in that area, it occurs between Sikorae and Henkeli. So is this, is this the one that looks very white? Uh has a lot of white modeling is that so my the, thinking of the... it can have a lot of white modeling but it doesn't usually it's okay. usually character like the best way to recognize it is that it has very weird looking eyes so they they tend to have these sort of bloodshot eyes um oh, okay okay yeah and they sometimes look a bit misted over uh, in the show notes, you'll find pictures of Europlatus candidate 11. And um, this species is also in description, but that description is going to take a lot, lot longer. So, um, yeah, but it's been really fun. So I've gotten to be involved in a lot of the taxonomy of these things. Um, Which is the... Fanul, 
which, Sorry? which is the most basal of the lineages? So the uh, apparently the Gunthery group is the most basal group. So it's a bit complicated because that you would think um, that that there would be a basal divide between the leaf-like ones and the bark-like ones. But instead, it seems like there was originally everything was bark-like and then there broke off a group that became leaf-like. Hmm. And I mean, so much about their bodies are different. Oh, there's some other morphological weirdness that I haven't mentioned. Like they have inscriptional ribs that go all the way down their vertebra. So they only have one vertebra that does not have a rib on it, which is quite unusual among geckos. They have a really, really well-defined um, ziphisternum that um, that includes most of those, um, those ventral ribs. Uh, they have... Oh, that, by the way, protects them in a way... Um, from underneath and sort of allows them to be more dorsoventrally compressed. Early taxonomists didn't know what the fuck to do with Europlatus and put them first in their own family, the Europlatidae, and then put them in the Chameleonidae. What? I didn't which know Which was that. a bad decision. But you know what chameleons have is also ribs down every one of the vertebrae except for the last one. Hmm. And funnily enough, some of the Europlatus, they kind of move a little bit like uh, chameleons. So what's yeah, interesting I mean, about yeah. these, these super um, uh, slow-moving geckos, Europlatus, is that they have uh, the inability to run. The Europlatus cannot run. Well, I should say, the Gunthery group somewhat can, but the Fimbriatus group cannot run. And especially the Ebonawi group also cannot run, but they can jump and they jump like frogs. So in that respect, I guess they remind me a little bit of Coralophus, which is also not good at running. They can run, but they like to jump. They will bite you. I've yeah. been bitten by <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So... Um, I think Europlatus have, have attracted a huge amount of attention because they are so unique among geckos. They have all kinds of very weird osteological features and biological features that make them really special. Have I mentioned their tracheal anatomy yet? I sort of mentioned it jokingly at the front, but they have very, very weird trachea. They they uh, squeak when you catch them. They like scream at you. Um, and their tracheal anatomy, uh, or the laryngotracheal anatomy, is so similar to a group of very weird geckos from uh, from Africa that I can't remember the name of right now. That there has been some hypothesizing that they might be related to those instead of all of the Afri of the Malagasy things. Um, but they look nothing like each other. So, so nobody knows what they're. You know, if they're not closely related to any other geconid. In Madagascar, are they closely related? Closely related to any mainland African one? Nothing. We we don't know. They keep flopping around, and part of the problem is the phylogenies that have been trying to do this, that have been published so far, have all based been based on very few sequence data that were published um, quite early on, and it hasn't been improved or replaced. For time, well, so you keep I mean, the, finding the, the same things again and again. 
So then the possibility could be that they're related to something African that is now extinct. Very possible, or something mal. I mean, more probably something Malagasy that is now extinct. Um, yeah, I don't actually know how old the group is. I don't know that, but um, certainly the level of speciation that they've reached is is very impressive. And what, um, do you know what is the divergent molecular clock divergent time between most Malagasy gecko groups? I mean, how long? Have they, um... Um, well, it's a bit complicated. So there's a paper uh, that was published by Crotini and colleagues in 2012 that's called Vertebrate Time Tree Elucidates the Biogeographic Pattern of Major Biotic Change Around the KT Boundary in Madagascar. And in this paper, they date many of the different colonizations of Madagascar. Uh, by various different vertebrate lineages. Of course, me many of them arrived independently. But there are serious problems with some of the dates in the paper. And uh, I have not been able to reconcile those problems. So I don't trust them. And as a result, no, we don't know when things arrived. Maybe around the KT boundary. But for me, that seems less likely than substantially later. Because if it's that so far, I would expect that these have been there for like thirty million years. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, these things have been clearly isolated for a very, very long time to achieve this level of insanity in their morphology. So much so that they have been placed within the. Uh, chameleons in the past like that's well, that's a little that's bit weird. extreme yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean that's bad taxonomy but you know it's a, so it's also the 1800s <laughs> I, I mean, like I, what else were they gonna do i could sort right i was gonna say 1800 i could sort of if you were looking at like brachysia and one of the tiny little leaf-tailed uh you know ebonawi type you know I, I could see that I yeah could, totally yeah but i mean um you know the the, the group is is interesting or or is very unique among geckos makes them very difficult to compare with other things but mostly they're just a, a really amazing group of lizards for all kinds of reasons i mean they're very popular in the pet trade they're quite threatened um a lot of the species i forgot to mention this for the um Ebenawi group again but a lot of the species within the Ebenawi group and in fact on the whole can be also recognized based on the color of their mouths. And we still have no idea why, because we don't know that they use the inside color of their mouth for any functional purpose in their day-to-day -day lives. It's the same with anolis in several species of anolis who you can recognize by their mouth. Really? Line. Yeah, like um, uh, the, the, the Cuban chameleons, what they call the false chameleons, they usually have uh, the mouth lining, also the chrysolepis norops, Chrysolepis, uh, for all those who like to divide and all this, the Neurops chrysolepis group also in the mouth lining and the color of the tongue. So crazy. It, it works. So my question is, do you have do you guys have a favorite? I told you what my favorite Europlatus is. Do you have a favorite Europlatus species? Hmm. I I mean I kept Sikora and I really liked them, but I uh I think probably the Fantasticus, just because it's so it's so strange looking. Yeah, I would uh, say um, Finaritra, just because it's 
very similar to Fantasticus, but I helped to name it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it gets bigger, which makes it much more spectacular. Although I should mention that uh, since we described that species and said, okay, it's a giant form of Fantasticus, whatever, um, several points have been raised that make us question that conclusion. Um, Not that it's big, but that it's much, much bigger because there are uh, records now that have come out from hobbyists or from from field observations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of very large Europlatus fantasticus. So, so the size the size might be more variable than the size than, might be more variable yeah. than we have in our collections. It might just be rare variants within fantasticus that are so large. We don't know. Yeah, that's totally possible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they're really uh, I mean I've said this now eight times they're just amazing lizards they're some of my favorites I, when I first started learning about Madagascar you know I had this um, the brat guide to the wildlife of Madagascar that includes pictures by Nick Garbutt and others and and some of the photographs in there of Europlatus just blew my mind. I was like, oh, wow, I have to so, see this. That's, yeah, that's bucket list type stuff, yeah. definitely. And know? on my yeah. first trip to Madagascar, which was in 2005, which is bonkers, um, I got to see Europlatus um, Ebena- uh, Gunthery in the wild, which was crazy. And then later on, I think I also saw Europlatus fantasticus well so that was my question we know that some species are endangered so how easy i mean if i were to if i were to go to madagascar tomorrow how easy would it be for me to find uh uh, in the wild (laughs) that's a great question if you're looking during the day it's extremely difficult uh because as i say their camouflage is second to none um if you're looking at night they are remarkably easy to find, um, mm. especially if you know how to look. And I imagine you, Gabriel, know how to look because you have done other herping things at night in the past. Um, they almost always are seen at night walking along smallish horizontal branches. And often those branches are at head height or a little bit higher. Um, in some cases, you'll find them almost on the ground, uh, not quite on the ground, always on some kind of twigs or something, um, depending on the species and species group. But yeah, they're relatively easy to observe. So none of them are um, canopy dwellers? So it seems that Europlatus peachmanai is a canopy dweller. The uh, first records of the species came from individuals that had been caught after trees were felled and um we think that they're probably much higher up the trees so that's a promising area for future work to search for additional species um that are especially related to to peach is to look higher up the trees because mostly we don't do that it's really rare for us to do any kind of arboreal really really high up searching um because we just don't have the the equipment or the expertise to do the canopy searches. Um, The people who have done canopy searches in Madagascar in the past have not found Europlatus up at the top. 
Do you, does that require you to climb to literally climbing trees and well, you, Yeah, you'd have to take your climbing kit for yeah, that's getting it. up and into the axis. Use, you can't use a drone or something to like. You could, but I mean, then you find it and you can't catch it, which is if worse. you find it because it's, it's, it's kind of shoddy, but they yeah. run away. They as soon yeah. as they hear it, can it be can it be lizards and squamates and reptiles and amphibians? Are the ones that are the we know the least because they're so difficult to find. It, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are even plated lizards from Madagascar that live in the canopy, and we have no idea what they're doing up there or how to find how them. Many species there like Zonosaurus, Bedgari, no clue. Just we know that there are Felsuma that struggle so there too. You, you, I think you told me once that, that there are some adaptations in Europlatus for gliding. Well, yeah, so Europlatus seem to have precursors to what I would expect in in a something that wanted to glide. So like a pre-patagium type of yeah, a thing like so, the, like the skin folds on exactly. a on a, a rachidactylus too. Exactly. So the skin yeah. folds that they have along their flank are they're very fragile and thin, but especially at the at the um shoulder or at the armpit, they seem to like they extend a little bit. So you could almost say that it's something in that direction. Also, of course, could, the very broad, be, flat tail would help to go in that direction. And could that not also be a, um, isn't one of the other theories for those uh, mite pockets? So they uh, do have um, mite pockets. Yeah. They have real mite pockets, um, just yeah. like chameleons and, and all kinds of other yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but this is separate. This is a, a real flap of skin that's above that hole. So that hole is still there. And then. Yeah there's a flap of skin above it. Um, and the other thing is, so of course, they have these very broad, large, flat tails um, in the in the Fimbriatus group now specifically. But when they jump, they hurl themselves parachute style. So they also spread all of their limbs out. And, um, and I imagine that they're quite good at controlling their fall. But of course, we know from other work that's been done on this um, by various different people, that most geckos seem to be more or less primed. Most arboreal geckos are more or less primed to um, to parachute when opportunity well, arises. You know, you mentioned before that they don't run, so it would make sense that <laughs> that that would be true. their escape mode. It's true, mode. and they do jump as as their main mode yeah, of for, escape. For, so this is something transitional. For that, possibly. I would take yeah, into right. consideration the jumping part and the and this and the not running part because a lot of cryptic. Uh, reptiles tend to not run. Even chameleons are famous for not running. Uh, and then you have like polycris. Oh, they're polycris surprisingly fast. They, run. they tend to be slower. Whereas, but chameleons suck at jumping. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you couldn't with those adaptations. Yeah. yeah. In in a lot of ways, uh, Europlatus behave like a tree frog. Very much so. And if yeah. you see them, so so a large portion of the individuals like, they even look see, like a, yeah exactly. It's just like with with Coralophis ciliatus. A vast majority of specimens that you see in the wild are tailless, and then they look extra frog like. Yeah. Um, well, so within the Ebenawi group, most of the individuals you'll see are tailless. Within the Sicarei group, they do a better job of keeping their tails, and they can regenerate them. So you obviously see more with tail. I have a crested gecko that has a regenerated tail, actually. Uh, it, it it then proceeded to lose it again, but it, it had like this little nub that was growing. Crazy. Anyway, 
that's for another time. We'll yeah. talk. <laughs> Can I also say that we, we, crested geckos are not real geckos? That's, it. that's, <laughs> a, that's the, the, the controversial statement of the book. Well, now they're like the ball pythons of the gecko world. Everybody has. Well, they're geckos, but they're not gecko meals. Oh, you mean like taxonomically? I got you. Yeah, like uh, the good thing about the, well, the cool thing about Europlatus is that you can really call them geckos. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, <laughs> I got it. I'm just being an ass. I know. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed this adventure into possibly the greatest geckos. Um, uh, contact us via our email, um, squamatespod at gmail.com, if you disagree with us, and please provide arguments as to why you believe your other geckos are superior to your platus. I highly doubt it, but give it a go, and we'll um, we'll we'll publicly shame you on the show. Um, so, <laughs> on that note, Ethan, where can one find you on the internet? You can get a hold of me at my website, ethankosak.com, and I am at Black Mud Puppy on almost all social media. Excellent, and Gabriel. Same. I am at Serpentilus on most uh, social media and you can find my website at gabrielugeta.com and I am at Mark Shirts on all the things except Facebook where I'm MD Shirts for reasons best known to my younger self um, you can follow <laughs> because the... you are a medical doctor right? Uh, yes I am <laughs> <laughs> I now am Dr. Shirts MD so you know <laughs> it is kind of that way um, yeah <laughs> you can follow the podcast at squamatespod.com there you will find all of our extensive show notes for this episode there may even be a whole bunch of beautiful Europlatus pictures taken by yours truly um, maybe Gabriel wants to illustrate some ooh maybe Ethan wants to illustrate some there is of course one in right. <laughs> we just want to come in soon there is of course one in our avatar so you've already got that um, you can follow us on Twitter at SquamitsPod. You can follow us on Facebook, SquamitsPod, Instagram. We are also SquamitsPod and sometimes even post content. And as I mentioned already, you can email us. You can also go to the iTunes store and leave us a delightful little review or a, uh, a comment or a rating. I tried. And yeah. um, you can tell us how much you like and or hate the show. We are acceptant and open to constructive criticism and that's all all right thank you very much for listening and as we say on the show Hakuna Hakuna Hakuna